listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. In this episode, we're taking a chance to present clips from some of my favorite conversations of 2018, from data visualization to the Internet of Things to data learning. 2018 was full of incredible conversations. It's like my children. I love them all. But I feel like I've learned a lot, and I hope you have too. I'm going to jump right in. One of my favorite conversations of the year was with Lisa Seacat DeLuca, an IBM Distinguished Engineer and Master Inventor. These days, she works on IoT, Internet of Things, and I asked her to unpack some of the terminology. Do you see any distinction between IoT and the edge, or is that, is that one and the same, or is there a definition distinction between the two? There's definitely a distinction. Distinction. I think edge is more about um, knowing that you're in a situation where you can't necessarily have access or send your data to the cloud quite fast enough to where you can make um, insights quick enough. So it's like uh, maybe the network is not as strong or you're in a dead spot. I mean, I grew up in Montana, so there's a lot of times where I can't make a phone call or get on the internet because that's to me the edge. It's those places where it's a lot harder to process information fast enough because you can't get on the cloud fast enough. Um, so edge computing is making those decisions locally, more locally on the devices um, and then sharing it when it's possible um, through the rest of the network. What fair, fair enough. What role do you think data plays? I mean, this is a making data simple podcast, even though we go everywhere, but uh, yeah. what, what role do you think data plays in, in, what should organizations be thinking about as it relates to their data? Yeah, I mean, data is everything. Uh, IoT wouldn't be anything without data. It really is the sensors and the information that is, is uh, being created by these things. That's the data and the power of IoT. Um, so it's just, in my opinion, the same thing. Data is IoT, um, and, of course, it's more uh, that marrying of data with the processing and the insights. So using artificial intelligence and machine learning and the cognitive computing, right, to make that data interesting. Well, the next question I was going to ask you is about what role does AI play, but I'll, I'll change that question a little bit just in terms of, because you kind of mentioned an element of AI. What do you see as some of the big changes in IoT you know, we just started out the new year in 2018 and, and beyond. I mean, now we've got IoT, we've got artificial intelligence, we've got blockchain, we have the edge. Seems like it's all coming together. If you were to predict anything, what would your prediction be over 2018 and beyond? Um, I, I, th I mean, we're just getting started. It's so exciting to see where this is all taking us. Um, I, I am personally excited about stuff like voice and how voice and the interaction uh, with individuals is going to take off. Um, being able to talk to our things and our computers without having to type it. I mean, a lot of people are slow typists. Some people are unpacked. Um, I'm a pretty fast typer, but not everybody is. So just this ability to use your voice and to explain what it is you want the machine to do um, and have results out of that. I think that we're going to see a lot of our, our things incorporate voice to be controlled or to do other interesting things. Um, and that'll take into account a lot of the blockchain and edge computing just because of the nature of voice. Let me ask you a question. I mean, I, I get your point of IoT and cloud being siblings. 
But do you also see a scenario where IoT or Edge, whatever you want, can be self-contained, where you have compute storage, decisions on the edge, acting solely with the other IoT devices without the need of cloud? Or do you see always cloud being there to take that information back, do some learning, throwing it back, maybe even machine learning, throw it back to the devices? Do you ever see it being self-contained? Do you see it always as sibling that are uh, connected? There's definitely an, an aspect of it that is self-constrained. I know we had a use case within IBM where we were talking about helping a speedboat, right? And they were doing all this edge computing because they weren't able to go over the network quick enough to help make decisions for the driver of that speedboat um, to how to change all the levers in the boat in order to win the race. But then after the race is over, being able to send that data to the cloud to then process and make hindsight kind of insights of how um, you know, you could have done this differently or the, the decisions that you made um, made this result. So I, I, I do agree that there's definitely a, an excitement about being able to do it just on the edge, but it's the sending back and the learning from those behaviors that is also interesting. And we, we can't get away with uh, not doing the cloud as well. A little bit later in the year, I connected with John Thomas for a conversation about machine learning. John works directly with clients every day on machine learning initiatives that have the potential to transform their organizations. I asked how he helps those teams set priorities and manage expectations. Now we take a very, very practical approach, right? So when I go in and talk to a client, um, what I say is I'm not here to boil the ocean. I'm here to work on a very specific, tangible use case. And I'll make sure that that use case succeeds. So what we do, we ask for a few things. So one of the things we ask for is we want business involvement, business commitment. We don't want to just go talk to somebody who is playing around with tools and show him some tools and walk out of there. We want the business, the line of business to be involved. Two, we want the data guys to be involved. And three, we want the data scientist team to be involved. So three different entities have to come together. The business, the IT slash data owners, and three data scientists. And these are different entities who have to come together and own the problem and work with us collaboratively. And then when, when that happens, it becomes a successful 90-day engagement. You know, up to 90 days, we, you know, we can do two, three sprints, you know, 60 days, 90 days. But at the end of it, it's a tangible set of assets that the business is valuing, and then they can scale. As an extension of that question, do you ever get to a client and they don't have a data science team yet? Yeah, so we do. Uh, as much as possible, we do a lot of prep work ahead of time to say, now these are the roles we are expecting to be at the at the table, we have usually we do a day long workshop going through the use case, taking it apart, understanding data sources and applications that play today, understanding the work that has been done and so on. In the case of uh, clients where data science teams don't exist at all, we have not. There's always somebody who claims to be a data science uh, <laughs> team <laughs> in every enterprise that we have walked into. You know, but you said the key word, claims. <laughs> we usually get someone, but if the skills are really lacking, then the DSE team will, will, will obviously train them as we go through the engagement. In fact, I would say the actual algorithms are almost secondary. In order for, um, I'm not downplaying their, their importance, I'm just saying without these other pieces of the puzzle in place, no matter how good an algorithm you write and no matter how great a model you build, it is just going to stay as a model in someone's workbench. It will never see the light of day. What is your most common use case? You mentioned a lot about use cases or, or maybe an extension to that question is for the folks listening, I mean, what use case is almost 
a consistent area where almost any company in the industry can get value from? Such an interesting question, Al, because it was not one we expected it would be. Our team has gotten involved in pretty much every industry, every um, type of use case, ranging from air and space to banking. The one use case that keeps coming up again and again across industries is a call center use case. So the, the idea here is, can the business understand why a customer is calling into the call center? Can they understand what is in the customer's mind, read the customer's mind to some extent? Can they understand the intent in the conversation and change in intent as the conversation progresses so that you can reduce call handling time, where, so that you can reduce number of transfers? We started off this with one client in the banking industry, and then we found out the same exact use case pop-up in healthcare, in uh, in a variety of different industries, and they all have the same pattern, understanding salient topics in a conversation and be able to respond to that in the most efficient way. Now, what's interesting is that in some of the cases, it started off as a call coming into a call center, but the same mechanism, whether it's a chatbot interacting with, with an end user, or if it is a combination of a virtual agent and a human agent interacting with an end user, they all follow the same kind of paradigm where you have to understand understand salient topics in a conversation and interaction and even learn as the interaction progresses and be able to engage with the client in a, in a very compelling way. A big topic across the world of data is visualization. How do you use visualization to convey the insights of data, by example? We were thrilled to get Jillian Ellis on the podcast to talk about this. Jillian is a senior data analyst at HoytCat. And I asked her how she sees visualization in her business and why it's so important. We are blending science and um, art with the storytelling. Humans are meant to see things visually. Um, If you go back to the caveman days, you see all of these drawings that they used to tell stories. So why should data be any different? If we have the ability to draw the user's eye to a specific piece of data that makes it quick and consumable, why wouldn't we do that? And one of my uh, favorite examples to point out is just, just to show the importance of visualization. Have you heard of Anscom's Quartet? I don't know that I have. Maybe I should have. No. Nope, okay. Fine. Well, I, I highly recommend Googling it because what it does is, is he was a statistician um, back in, I want to say, the 18 or 1900s, way before we were around. And he has four identical data sets. And when I say identical, I mean that all of their statistics are identical. So the means of Y, the means of X is, the variance of both Y's and X's, the correlations between X and Y, the linear regressions, and the coefficients are all equal. So if you looked at these tables of these four different data sets and you only looked at the summary statistics, you would think, okay, this is the same data. But when you graph it, it is completely different. Each one of those four data sets is a whole different line. And without that visualization, the any user that would say, oh, well, they have the same mean, they have the same coefficient, they have all of the same stuff, so they must be the same, they must be telling the same story. But that's not actually true when you graph it out. And that's just one one of my favorite examples of how visualization can help show the point that you're trying to make with data. 
it's one thing to come in and say, here are the results. It's another thing. And what I find when it really works is when somebody comes in and says, here's where we missed our targets. Now it's still based on fact. It's still based on the data. You're not trying to look in somebody's cookie jar unnecessarily, but you know, visualization with the right leader and influencer that can take that, that information and then really point out via visualization, you know, the, the actual activity that caused the problem, that's where the magic happens. And I got to believe that uh, you're doing both, bringing the data and then talking to the activity that you see causing the problem, which results in the corrective action. Yeah. And it's very, very critical the way you present the data, right? So like you said, you can, you can frame your conversation two different ways and it will be received completely differently, whichever way you, whichever way you frame it. And so when I present data to executives, I don't have any of my knowledge showing, right? I just say, here's what we're seeing. And then I start asking them questions. Which store do you think has the best performance this quarter? Is that higher or lower than last quarter? Where can we improve? Rather than um, saying, man, sales are really sucky right now. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's all about your tone and all about how you present the data because some people can tend to get very defensive especially when we have this level of intimacy with the data. Um, You have to walk a fine line between knowing the answer and pointing them in the direction to get the answer. One of the smartest folks I know and I get to work with is Adam Storm with a superhero name. He's a data architect focused on storage and fast data. I asked him to give us some context and talk about current challenges. If you look... 20, 30 years ago, data was a fairly simple problem to solve. There was only a couple of ways that you could store it, a couple of tools that you could use to store it, but your options were kind of limited as to how to store the data and how you can make it accessible. So we had, um, it was simple in some respects in that um, if you had a data problem, you know you knew who to turn to, but your options weren't as wide open as they are today. So now fast forward 20, 30 years, especially in the last 15 years with the rise of things like Hadoop and all of the open source technology that's out there, there's a whole number of ways that you can store your data. The problem is a whole bunch of those ways are not necessarily good ways to store data. And you see there are a lot of architectures being proposed in open source and in forward thinking companies that may work for them at the scale they're working at and because they want to leverage open source tooling and they have the staffing to do that. But they're setting up tremendously complex architectures, which companies that don't have their resources aren't able to do. So I think that you and I are both trying to do the same thing, which is to take this massively increasing amount of data and make it simpler to manage. So to take the complexity that's come into the industry in the last 15 years and really simplify it at an enterprise scale. So let me ask you this. Why, when I ask you what you want to discuss, you go immediately into to, to fast data? I think that fast data presents its own interesting challenges. Obviously, the data is coming in extremely quickly, so much so that we there are streaming technologies out there today. Uh, That's the predominant way of handling fast data. And what they do is they analyze it in small sections and then just throw it away because they can't persist it fast enough. So there's the challenges of bringing the data in quickly, but also as you're accumulating all this data very quickly, you end up accumulating a huge amount of it very quickly. And so you need to handle the storage, uh, store it in an effective way, but also in a way that you can make use of it. Uh, Having data on disk isn't valuable. Deriving insights from that data is the value. Businesses need to derive insights faster and faster today to get value out of their data. So when you and I have talked about this before, you have mentioned various solutions 
vehicles for this problem, like Lambda architecture, Kappa architecture, modified Lambda architecture. It seems like there's no perfect solution. And I know we can get into the bowels quickly with, with some of those, maybe those those three areas of discussion, but at least, at, a, at least at a high level, can you give your thoughts? I mean, is it as confusing as it sounds with all these different architectures to solve the same problem? I think it is as confusing as it sounds. There's, okay, let's take a step back. So if you look 15, just 15 years ago, there was this, some might call it a renaissance of open source tooling that ended up in the hands of data professionals. So there was a, a Hadoop came out of Yahoo, Facebook open sourced Cassandra. There was a whole bunch of LinkedIn open sourced Kafka. There's a whole bunch of open source tooling that's available now. Um, and a lot of people are seeing this and saying, we can cobble together a solution with all of these components, uh, which I think works for a lot of companies, especially if you're willing to put in the energy. But it's tremendously complicated for a shop that doesn't want to devote a huge percentage of its resources to bare bones IT and data management. It's difficult for them to take the same approach. And I think one of the big problems is that if you go on YouTube or you go on SlideShare and look at all of these presentations, these companies like like uh, Google and Facebook and Netflix and Uber have huge IT departments that are putting together infrastructure to store all of this data. If your company doesn't have the resources or the appetite to do that, they're has to be a better solution. It, there needs to be a simpler way to store these kinds of large data sets. Well, to your point, I mean, the thing that's really interesting to me is I'm talking to many clients about cost savings. And then in some of these architectures that you mentioned, I turn away and then look back and they've got small armies that they're spending to to stand up these architectures. And, and I'm questioning that now, what was your, what was your original goal again? I'm, I'm seeing that a lot too. Like I talked to customers and especially over the last five years, it seems like there are a lot of larger cu- customers who, wh- when I say large, I mean large by market cap. And they think, well, we can just roll our own data solution, leverage open source, build it on Hadoop, bring in all of the best of breeds of like the Cassandras and so on. And we'll roll our own architecture. And two or three years after they've gone down this path and have not put anything into production yet, we end up talking to them and they say, this was the wrong approach. We don't have the staffing resources or the appetite to do all this. And we want an enterprise software company to deliver a solution for us. Let's close with a look at machine learning. IBM is very lucky to have Jean-Francois Puget as a distinguished engineer and an expert on machine learning and optimization. I asked him to talk about the difference between AI and deep learning. Uh, so I agree it's confusing. So it's very simple. Deep learning is a set of technologies called neural networks that is good for image recognition, understanding speech um, and or videos, understanding what's in videos. So processing and structured data and learn from it. So that's deep learning. Deep learning is part of machine learning. There are other form of machine learning uh, for structured data. And then, so deep learning is a form of machine learning and machine learning is one of the capabilities of AI. Artificial intelligence includes machine learning. It includes also reasoning. Uh, you know, the Deep Blue uh, playing chess is mm-hmm. AI. AlphaGo playing Go is AI as well. It's not just learning. So AI includes reasoning, includes natural language processing, and it includes machine learning. So, so you suggesting deep learning doesn't include the reasoning part? No, deep learning is just about processing. Deep learning is about replicating the five human sense, vision, 
to uh, hearing. Uh, uh, well, it's mostly uh, vision and hearing, but what's on as a taste, what's on shape, for instance. So it's based on deep learning as well. So deep learning is about replicating human ability to process sensor input. You know, the eye is a sensor, the ear is a sensor. So it's it's an important piece of intelligence, but it's not all of it. And just as another taxonomy, neural nets being what nodes that are interconnected that just model the human brain? No, so deep learning and neural networks is the same. Uh, It started that way in the 60s with people trying to replicate, to simulate in computers how the brain works. So they started with neurons and connection between neurons. But it has evolved in a way that now this analogy is no longer true. Uh, We call it neural networks, but they are really actually, uh, you've heard also tensor, like in TensorFlow, uh, or matrix multiplication. And deep learning is really a bunch of matrix multiplications. It's uh, It has nothing to do with how the brain operates today. People are still using the analogy to get the buzz and headlines, but no. It's different. That's good information. It has, it has, uh, some people are still working in neuroscience, trying to model the human brain, but it's different from uh, deep learning. So, you know, extending that a little bit, you referenced Deep Blue. Uh, yes. Certainly we have Watson. Uh, Arthur Samuel was one of the first out there in mm. IBM, I've said before, and he, he created Checkers, um, which was... It was the first machine learning program ever. Exactly, exactly. But I guess the question is, from to extend that further, um, I know IBM is done a, doing a ton more as it relates to neural nets, deep learning, etc. Um, I don't know if we need to do a better job explaining that at times, or do you think we're doing well in that? And if you could, you know, at least talk to some of those technologies that um, are, are shaping the market. So we have uh, we have uh, an issue, uh, and not just us, all the vendors of machine learning technology. There is hype and there is what people really need. Hype is on deep learning to recognize cats on YouTube videos. <laughs> I've seen enough cat recognition, by the way. I was crazy stuff. Anyway. Yeah, so it's fun. <laughs> Everybody can relate to it. I say cats, but it can be anything yeah, of interest. It has some value and in, in some, for instance, it certainly has some value. But our customer, the enterprise, they, they process structured data. We host it for them. We manage it and they can learn from it. And the technology they need to learn from it is not deep learning. It's other machine learning technologies. Problem is those technologies don't make headlines. So we have to educate people on, yes, TensorFlow and deep learning is great, but do you really need, do you really have an image recognition problem or something else? And if it's something else, then you may need something different than deep learning. Where do you think ML, AI is doing well? Where do you think, well, you got to be like any technologist frustrated in some areas because it's not yeah, addressing the... So I think the main, uh, for people working as data scientists, you know that the job market is crazy. There is a lack of data scientists and people are fighting for talent. And one reason is the current technology, as good as open sources, is very time consuming. The data scientist, to build a model, needs to do a lot of trial and errors. It's, it's consuming a lot of time. So one of the priorities we have this year is to work on automation and we're not the only team so that people can perform the same quality of machine learning model uh, by spending much less time. So we're working on automating the work of data scientists and that's a trend in the market. And it may be that in 10 years, we won't need data scientists anymore. I doubt it, but (laughs) uh, I, I rather say that the job of the data scientist will be more productive yeah. They will concentrate on where they add value and less on tasks that we automate for them. 
There you have it. Some great material from five of our best episodes. Thanks for listening, and thanks for making 2018 a great year for the podcast. We appreciate your attention. We appreciate your engagement. And we're looking forward to bringing you more great guests and great conversations in 2019. Listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, over and out.